You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The U.S. and Iran trade fire in Iraq, and a leading Iranian general is killed in a U.S. airstrike. A corresponding escalation of cyber operations can be expected. Currency exchange Travelex continues to operate manually as it works to recover from what it calls a software virus. There's speculation that the Ravenair incident may have been a ransomware attack, and Taiwan adopts an active policy against Chinese attempts to influence its elections. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, January 3rd, 2020. In a case where the kinetic operations of a hot war can be expected to be accompanied by cyber operations, Iran has promised retaliation for the U.S. airstrike in the outskirts of Baghdad earlier today that killed Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani, commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard's Quds Force. One of Soleimani's principal collaborators, Iraqi militia commander Abu Mahdi al-Muhandi, was also killed. The Quds Force is responsible for unconventional warfare and intelligence. Its commander reports directly to Iran's supreme leader, the Ayatollah Khamenei. Reuters cites U.S. sources as saying the strike was intended to disrupt further plans by militia aligned with Iran to attack U.S. targets, including the U.S. embassy in Iraq. Iranian operations against U.S. assets and interests have long been asymmetric and, despite recent rocket and mob attacks, are likely to remain so. The Defense Department statement quoted at length by The Atlantic said, quote, General Soleimani was actively developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the region, end quote. The U.S. holds General Soleimani responsible for recent attacks on U.S.-led coalition bases, including one in late December that killed an American contractor. General Mark Milley, chairman of the U.S. Joint Chief of Staff, said yesterday, quote, We know that the intent of this attack was, in fact, to kill. 31 rockets aren't designed as a warning shot, the general observed. General Soleimani was widely regarded as an effective leader who traveled widely and worked intelligently to build Iranian influence in the Arab world. He had overtly supported Iraqi Shiite militia, which accounts for his presence in the vicinity of Baghdad. Observers expect an increase in cyber conflict, and the Telegraph took a look at the current state of Tehran's capabilities. Tehran claims to have some 100,000 cyber warriors, and while this total is almost certainly considerably exaggerated, Iran's capabilities in cyberspace aren't negligible. Most of their attacks in recent years have been directed against regional rivals, especially the threat group oil rigs campaigns against Saudi targets, but Iranian outfits have hit U.S. targets in the past. 
The U.S. Justice Department, for example, in February 2018, secured federal indictments against nine Iranian nationals associated with the Mabna Institute, an organization that serves as a cyber operations contractor for the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Charges included conspiracy to commit computer intrusions, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, computer fraud, unauthorized access for private financial gain, wire fraud, and aggravated identity theft. The indictment alleges that their victims included approximately 144 universities in the United States, 176 foreign universities in 21 countries, five federal and state government agencies in the United States, 36 private companies in the United States, 11 foreign private companies, and two international non-governmental organizations. This, of course, represents a small sample of what Tehran's cyber operators might be capable. Travelex, a major London-based international currency exchange, is still working to restore online services after finding what it called a software virus in its systems on New Year's Eve. The exchange is still able to conduct in-person transactions manually, and it has reassured customers that no personal data were compromised. Little information has been forthcoming about the attack on Ravenair, but it is known that maintenance software peculiar to the airline group's Dash 8 twin turboprop aircraft was affected. How or why the attack occurred remains unknown, but the register quotes speculation that this may have been a ransomware incident. We stress this is speculation. The story is developing. The investigations are still in progress. Taiwan's government has adopted a rumor control program that appears to be enjoying some success, the Wall Street Journal reports, against Chinese disinformation campaigns mounted against the island republic's elections. Taipei's policy has combined a close relationship with social networks to ensure swift takedown of coordinated inauthenticity with very active outreach to push back against fake news. When they find disinformation, they quickly debunk it in social media and try to have the debunking take the form of an easily understood and transmitted meme. This Tuesday, Taiwan's legislature passed a law President Tsai Ing-wen fast-tracked with a view to counteracting Beijing's influence operations. The new law makes political activities that serve external hostile forces crimes, and the proscribed activities include not only spreading disinformation, but also making certain political donations and holding certain campaign events. The external hostile forces are, of course, to be found along the straits on the mainland. The program may hold some lessons for other governments concerned about hostile information operations during election seasons. It's only fair to note that Taipei's program hasn't been free of domestic controversy. The opposing nationalists, the Guomingdong, have charged that the whole effort is simply motivated to benefit the ruling Democratic Progressive Party. The Guomingdong favors closer relations with China, which the Democratic Progressives do not. In any case, observers say they've seen some abatement in Chinese influence operations. But correlation isn't, of course, necessarily causation, and there is a school of thought that sees this as just a case of Beijing having concluded that the Guomingdong candidate doesn't have a realistic shot at winning and so are just cutting their losses. One lesson other governments might study with profit is the apparent effectiveness of humor in developing memes against misinformation, One odd rumor that required debunking held that the government intended to fine hairstylists who gave a customer both a dye job and a perm within one week and that the fines would amount to the equivalent of $33,000. The country's head of government, Premier Zhu Chang, 
took to Facebook with a picture of himself as a young man complete with a full head of hair and an accompanying picture of himself in his current state as an egg-balled 72-year-old. He captioned the post by saying, Although I have no hair now, I wouldn't punish people like this. And he added a winking caution to the effect that dyeing and perming within seven days really damages your hair, and in severe cases you'll end up like me. His post got about 56,000 likes and more than 6,500 shares. The young Mr. Sue looks very serious, but the current Mr. Sue has a big grin. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute. He's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, I know you have been tracking some issues with uh, Netscaler, uh, some Citrix things here. Can you bring us up to date? What are you looking at? Yes, so... uh on the 17th, uh, Citrix published an advisory with some workarounds for a critical vulnerability in their Citrix gateway, also known as Netscaler gateway and ADC. The problem here is, and this really only has become sort of apparent on the 23rd, when Positive Technologies, the company that found a vulnerability, wrote about it, is that an attacker can execute arbitrary code on these devices without authentication. 
and mm. uh, these devices are usually well your perimeter so uh, it's not that you could say hey just no hide these devices deep inside your network in particular in configurations we use the device for example as an sl vpn endpoint to expose internal applications there isn't really much you usually have in front of it and that's exactly sort of the configuration that's sort of vulnerable here citrix only published a workaround meaning rules to block access uh, to the vulnerable urls they have not actually published a patch yet and with all the holidays affecting sort of 70 you know, of the globe uh, i think this hasn't really gotten the attention it really should have gotten of course you should apply the workaround really quickly there is luckily no proof of concept exploit at this point but mm. i looked at the code on these devices it's pretty messy. Uh, it's sort of what you would expect from a vendor that doesn't really worry too much about security, like any security vendor putting applications out there. It took me a day, maybe less, uh, to sort of come up with a partial exploit for it. So hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if there is already some exploit uh, in the underground that's targeting specific devices. And, and that's really the game here, right? That's the race against time. When uh, when the vulnerability gets publicized, it's not just the good guys who are racing to, to develop a patch. The, the bad guys are often running as well. Correct. And I think one reason actually that, uh, and I'm just speculating here, but one reason that Citrix did not publish an actual patch is that... Uh, it would be very obvious what the vulnerability is by mm. um, actually publishing the, the workaround. It sort of gave you what you need to protect yourself for now without releasing too much details about the vulnerability. Like part of the vulnerability here is literally very common out part of the input validation. Uh, so some developer at some point decided, hey, that input validation is maybe too strict. Maybe for debugging purposes, they common it out. I guess QA got cut down along the way, so they didn't catch that when they made that code live about five years ago. And since then, this particular parameter, for example, has not been validated. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that interesting yeah, how yeah. Uh, things can uh, just hang around in the, in the code for years and years? And I think it's a little bit of trend uh, these days where researchers and the bad guys are really looking at these perimeter devices closely. Now, uh, users ask for more and more features in these perimeter devices, meaning more and more code that's now exposed at your perimeter. If you have seen, like, for example, that 40 gate uh, director traversal vulnerability last year and a couple others, basically, you know, know what you ask for when you want more features, you'll also get more bugs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. They giveth and they taketh yeah. away. <laughs> All right. Well, Johannes Ulrich, as always, thanks for joining Thank you. us. My guest today is Derek Menke. He's Chief of Security Insights and Global Threat Alliances at Fortinet. Our conversation focuses on artificial intelligence in cybersecurity. It's a topic that's been beat up quite a bit thanks to overzealous marketing in the sector, as Derek Menke addresses. If we look at AI as a whole, using machine learning models and uh, actionable artificial intelligence on things like voice recognition and other applications, it's been much more mature. Looking at cybersecurity specifically, there has been a lot of overreach, I think, with it. Um, you know, when you look at marketing of AI as like this universal solution that's going to be introducing self-healing networks and all of these things, you know, well, well, I think that's certainly part of the future. 
the reality where we sit today, I, I believe we're entering into a second generation. Um, so backing up around two, two to five years ago in, in cybersecurity, most applications of AI have been uh, antivirus driven, you know, machine learning models that have been put in place specifically to recognize malicious code patterns to be able to you know, recognize that push out signatures to block those, right? That's been a traditional approach to AI. It's been a monolithic model, um, meaning that it's cloud-based. So it's basically one learning node where, you know, all the viruses will feed in and you can do uh, uh, through that model, do, do the processing and then push out some sort of decisive pattern to other organizations where those security appliances sit to be able to act on that. So in reality, what we need is an actionable AI system, right? Uh, artificial intelligence that can actually take decisive action with a very low risk of false positive. And again, right now, the current state of the industry is this, this first generation of AI, which is mostly driven towards uh, code blocking and, and antivirus. And so where do we stand in terms of that next generation being within our reach? Yeah, so we're starting to enter this now. Like I'm seeing it around the industry. Uh, we're also doing this um, at the Fortinet as well. And what what I'm seeing is um, that basically the second generation is extended reach to those learning model nodes. So instead of just having this monolithic brain, if you will, uh, in the cloud, that's doing all the processing and that's relying on everything to input into it. We're seeing now extended reach in the second generation of AI, which is a regional learning system, right? So you have now you have you're basically extending the same success that you've had from machine learning models in the cloud and putting them onto on-premises. So regional sites, you know, different verticals, different environments, different nodes of inspection for traffic, different types of traffic. All of this now is entering into the second generation of AI where those regional learning nodes extend into the cloud. So now they're also collecting data and feeding the cloud based off of its learned results, right? So then the cloud model can still take that extra input from these regional brains, do some additional processing and crunching, and then distribute that out to security appliances. You know, I, I think there, there's been so much messaging about AI, so, so much marketing, um, and uh, even to the point of hype, do you have any insights on the organizations who are offering these services? How should they be formatting their messaging? How should they be getting the word out to the folks who might be buying these things to kind of cut through that hype, to spread the word about what it's really useful for? In the security industry, most people rely on data sheets, and those can be quite biased sometimes, right? I mean, it depends on your data sets, on, on, your, on your test environments and all those things. I really believe in third-party testing, right? So, you know, we do this with NSS Labs as an example, ICSA, VB100, which does uh, testing for proactive detection. Again, these are the sorts of things I think, uh, you know, I, I believe you really have to put the rubber to the road and, and for, for, from a marketing campaign or standpoint show that you know this this can be effective show use cases show examples like real world examples that we're actually seeing out there not just numbers on a data sheet right um, I, I think that's a really good approach it's easy to walk through things like um, you know apt groups um, quite quite recently a big engineering project that we're undertaking at Fortinet is a playbook development so creating playbooks on, uh, on attackers anniversaries and then really showing how your technologies can relate to these real world attacks that that are quite well documented now um, you know MITRE documents and a lot of other 
things too. So, I mean, it, it's an education standpoint for people to be more aware of these threats, but also show how AI can stack up to that. You know, especially it gets even more important and interesting, I think, as we enter into the third generation of AI. I mean, it's 2020 now. <laughs> We've just turned into 2020, but uh, not, not really that far away, I don't think. And what, what can we expect to see when it comes to that third generation? In the future, I believe that we're going to get into this federated machine learning models where you have different devices doing their own machine learning, but peer-to-peer. So talking to each other and being able to pass data. So it's much quicker and and then actually um, you know be able to act on that data. So it's like a regionalized response uh, completely on-premises. So more of a distributed AI as a system model. That's going to allow for a lot of fascinating cases, I think. Obviously, a much quicker response, which is, by the way, incredibly important because um, I, I often talk about the weaponization of, of artificial intelligence, how attackers are going to be able to leverage AI uh, to you know, get in and out of networks much quicker. So, yeah, in the future, these this federated machine learning model where you have all these different parts of the attack surface that you're covering with different machine learning nodes, appliances, and models that can all interconnect and talk to each other. You know, only then, I think, once we get into that model, that we can start getting into these, I think what's been kind of promised before, talked about, this futuristic scene of, again, autonomous uh, security, self-healing networks, and so forth. A big journey that we're going into is threat intelligence. So I think artificial intelligence, uh, applications of that for threat intelligence is also going to be a very important thing in the future. We're already starting to use it. What we're starting to see now, you know, with threat intelligence is is using AI to build playbooks, right? And so playbooks are obviously uh, a complete guide and map, mostly using the MITRE attack framework, but a complete guide and map to how an attack group is moving. You know, what regions are, are they operating in? What, what verticals are they hitting? What's their infrastructure look like? What do their tools look like? How are they moving? A lot of that's pattern-based, right? And so by using machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, for, for threat intelligence is really important because it starts exposing, you know, it's a lot quicker to see things that the human eyes can't see, you know, exposing patterns, exposing, doing trending and forecasting to, to attacks and, and how they've been moving and where they may move in the future. So predictive analysis as well. That's also a really interesting scenario that we're already starting to, uh, to unravel a bit. So, um, you know, in- interesting things, right? That's Derek Mankey from Fortinet. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.